Welcome everybody back to the podcast for this month's episode. As you learned last month, we're going to be mixing things up a little bit. We're going to have a lightning round. We're lucky to have one of the authors on the line with us tonight, and we will touch on a few other things, including a little wrap up of our 2020 experience with the podcast. Before we get started, I do want to make one additional plug about a new podcast that's going to be starting soon, the Peed Sports Podcast. The episodes will start coming out in the next few weeks and will then be coming out about every two weeks. That is a podcast that we got off the ground thanks to a generous microgrant by Pozna. And we're going to basically be having some panel discussions with some sports experts from across the country. Cordelia Carter from NYU, Niraj Patel from Lurie Children's Hospital, Pam Lang from Wisconsin. And then we've also got some one-on-one interviews with authors about their research that'll be coming out on that podcast, including Andy Pinnock at UCSD and Rady Children's Hospital, Lee Pace up in Connecticut, among others. So we're excited about that. So please Please keep an eye out for the Pete Sports Podcast coming out in the next few weeks. For tonight, we'll go around and do our usual introductions. My name is Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans. This is Craig Lauer from UNC Children's in North Carolina, Chapel Hill. This is Julia Sanders from Children's Hospital, Colorado. Hey, this is Josh Holt coming from University of Iowa Children's Hospital. And we are delighted to have Dr. James Sanders from UNC Chapel Hill on the line with us to discuss his research and hopefully some more stuff. Dr. Sanders, welcome and thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. Great to be with you guys. So with that, I will hand things over to Craig to talk a little bit about the last year only from a podcast perspective, nothing else. I will say that I think it's been a great year from the podcast standpoint. I did want to thank all our listeners for joining us in 2020. We had 13,000 downloads in 2020. This is up 250, 266% actually from the prior year. Thank you to all you guys for uh, listening to us and contributing. There's roughly 500 people who listen to each episode. That was back in January to March. And then in May, when the pandemic hit, we canceled POSNA, the annual meeting, and we put out all those podcasts. We had month of May, there were 2,500 listens. And then since that point, a lot of people have stuck around and there's now a thousand people listening to each podcast each month. The other thing I thought was pretty cool was we can see a little bit of our demographics here. We have listeners from 60 different countries who regularly download and tune in. About 75% are from the U.S., but there's still greater than 1% from Great Britain, from Canada, from India, Japan, and Brazil. So I don't know if that surprised anyone, but I thought that was really cool to see that distribution. We're hoping for another amazing 2021. And if there's anything that you guys want to hear to keep you involved, keep you coming back, then just shoot us an email as always. It's going to be pedsorthopodcast at gmail.com. Without further ado, I'm actually going to bring Jim Sanders into the mix here. Thank you for joining us. This is another little landmark in that you're joining us for the whole discussion, but also you're one of the first papers we're featuring out of a journal other than JPO. And so we're bringing you in to discuss your recent work that's been published in JBJS. It'll be coming out next month. The title is height and extremity length prediction for healthy children using age-based versus peak height velocity timing-based multipliers, which is quite a mouthful. But this was a collaborative effort between uh, your institution, University of North Carolina, Case Western, and also Yale Orthopedic Departments. And uh, this work was also started while you're in Rochester. So we're joined today uh, by Jim Sanders. So thank you for being here. Great to be here. And actually, I subscribe to your podcast. I enjoy it. All right, Jim, thank you for being here. Uh, in all honesty, uh, we really do appreciate it. You have obviously spent a lot of your career doing work on growth, particularly adolescent growth spurt, and how it relates to various orthopedic conditions. You know, some of the listeners here may not have known you were coming on and gone back and read your prior articles and brushed up on them. So would you do us a favor and kind of put this most recent study in the context of the larger bit of work that you've done on growth? So. What does this kind of add to our collective understanding and, you know, where was the void that this is now filling? So the, the, the catalyst really for this work came from Posna and, and Posna with the Hewn Award. And it was, I can't remember what year it was, but it was back in Boston. And Dan Cooperman, we had put in for the, the Hewn Award, received it, and were able to go to the Brush Collection, which is where the Grulican Pile was developed from. And so we had all of the original x-rays from that, as well as all the original data, although not in a real workable format. And then Ray Lou has joined us since then. And we've had a number of other people who've kind of come with us, whether residents or people outside that. 
And one of our hypotheses, and this was from some earlier work that I had done on scoliosis, was that the timing of the peak height velocity was really the key to understanding adolescent growth. And all of the other things that we're using, such as age or tanner stages, uh, were not directly related to that. The tanner stages are indirectly related to it, but we did some early work on it, and it showed that the elbow stages were all very closely related, whether you were a boy or a girl, and they appeared nearly identical regarding the timing of the peak height velocity. So a boy two years after the peak height velocity looked almost identical to a girl two years peak after the peak height velocity. And the same thing for about two years before. So that was really the catalyst for it. And while we were doing this work, we found that there were some other collections, none of which had the same x-rays as the brush, but the one that we came to from this was out of Berkeley, which was a series collected of children who were born in 1929 and then followed through their entire growth. So we have full growth data on them. Unfortunately, the x-rays have been lost, but there's been a big controversy in Heed's ortho on should you use chronologic age the way that George Paley did with his multiplier method? Should you use skeletal age? Uh, and what is it? And our hypothesis, again, was that it's really the timing of the peak height velocity that makes the biggest difference. We published an article a few years ago where we identified that timing of the peak height velocity is, in almost all children, very closely approximated by 90% of final height. And that allowed us then to begin standardizing where children were without going through all of the derivatives we did initially to find them. But that allowed us then to have some tools to be able to do this and actually go back and directly compare the errors that would occur if you used the Paley age-based method or if you ended up using a peak height velocity method. And I just back up for a second and just ask in simplistic terms, how big of a deal is the peak height velocity? Like how much growth are you really getting at that stage? So, you know, if it's a small amount, you can imagine the timing wouldn't really matter, but is it really that much more than what we're seeing throughout the slow juvenile growth phase? It's a complete disconnect that occurs with the juvenile growth phase, which is relatively linear. Kids grow and grow and grow, and the longer they're in that phase, the longer they'll undergo this slow growth. And then they hit their growth spurt and they really shoot up. While the bulk of it's from the spine, the extremities also have a growth spurt. And so it's, you can't use the data that came before as an entire prediction on what's going to occur ahead, which was the foundation of things like the Mosley graph and, and some of the work that had been done with Green and Anderson. So essentially, you can't predict when someone's going to get into their growth velocity or their peak height when that's going to occur based off of what their prior percentile is. Is that right? That's correct. And, and children who are at the fifth percentile, if they hit their adolescent growth spurt earlier than other kids, will cross percentiles very early. Makes sense. So what did you all find when you looked at this data in a new way and compared the timing for the multipliers? Well, what we found is that during childhood, and we have that data better for height than we do for the extremities, uh, but during childhood, the age-based multipliers actually performed better than trying to use the, the peak height velocity timing. But once you start getting toward the adolescent growth spurt, age falls apart and the peak height velocity time becomes quite strong. So there's, there's a real transition that occurs between those. Can you tell us like, how much of a difference could you potentially get? Like if you used Paley multiplier and you had a boy entering their growth phase, you know, too early or too late, how far off could you be? Uh, on your predictions on the extremities, you could be up to about five centimeters off. So, it, so it's, it's a real difference when you're trying to do timing of your epiphysidesis or figuring how much you want to lengthen an extremity. Right. That's what I was thinking when I read this, just because most of the time when you're doing epiphysidesis, it's around the end of growth, right? You're trying to time it. And that's always when peak height velocity is. And so, uh, you know, that math is critical. When does that, just for our listeners, when does that cutoff occur? What age should we start looking at maybe these new published multipliers based off of hand age or peak growth um, velocity as, as opposed to using the chronologic age multipliers from Paley? You know, it, it occurs before the growth spurt actually really begins to take off. And that's a bit of a problem because, we, you know, the kids in this were born in 1929 now, and there's been a little bit of a shift in terms of the timing of the adolescent growth spurt. So I think ultimately we're going to have to deal with the, with the skeletal maturity and some other signs of it. But in that population, it was around age eight in girls and around age 10 in boys that they, that they cross. 
And that beyond that, you really need to start using timing of the peak height velocity, which is fortunately tightly related to skeletal maturity. Okay, so in your practice now, I assume that you've been doing this prior to publication. Can you kind of give our listeners a simple takeaway for how you manage thinking about when to do an epistiodesis around the time of skeletal maturity? So when I, when I see a child and, and they're young, I can use the age-based multipliers beautifully just to give some estimates to the family. Look, here's about the timing. Here's about what the differences are going to be. These are all reasonable numbers for us to, to base future things on. But when we're getting closer to the time that we're actually going to do it, then I begin following skeletal maturity. And that's similar to a lot of the work that John Birch has done showing that skeletal maturity, uh, if you use skeletal age, uh, which I don't love the term, bones are the same age as the child, but, uh, but skeletal age rather than age, chronologic age is really a better permanent as you get into the growth spurt. I guess the other practical point I would make is this involves just getting a hand age around the time you're making that determination or a left-hand film. And then do you score it via digital skeletal age or what some will call the standard system, but I've never heard you actually call it that. And then you relate it to the multiplier in your new work that's been published. Is that correct? That's correct. You know, we're continuing the work and our group has been able to identify another, a number of other areas that have good skeletal maturity markers, the knee, the, the, foot, the calcaneus, the shoulder, the elbow, the hip. So all of those are going to be, I think, useful in the end. We just need to make sure that people understand how to cross one to the other and decide which one they want to use. Okay. So there you have it. Jim Sanders from UNC with his paper from JBJS and his co-authors from Yale Orthopedics and Case Western. Thank you so much for taking the time to explain that to us. Do any of the other moderators have questions or follow-up? So my question is for a simple bone doctor like myself who struggles with even the most basic growth charts and tables what do you recommend right now as sort of the standard of care to be using in clinic to predict when to do an epiphysiodesis of an extremity you know it depends carter on how accurate you think you need to be at that point uh, and again, in a young child, I think using the multiplier method or any of the other following out percentiles is going to give you a rough estimate. And the old rules are not all that bad for doing it. But when you're starting to get very precise in where you're going, when you need to do the epiphysiodesis, uh, then going with something that's tightly related to peak height velocity. I think ultimately this is because the height data is related in the same fashion it's going to really matter for people who are doing uh, tetherings. When we start trying to figure out how much correction should you get, when should you be putting in a tether to get a certain amount of correction. And I think the data that we've generated from this gives us some basic principles as we start trying to figure it out better for the spine too. Jim, can I also propose when you take a multiplier and you have to kind of back calculate to the timing of the pipsiodesis, it does take a formula that I have to look at every time. If you have a patient, let's say, who you get the skeletal age and you see it's a, you know, let's say it's a 12 year old girl and you realize that they are actually, you know, right at the PGA 90 or the peak growth. I believe that correlates to, you know, right where they should be, right? Is that roughly the same? So in that case, could you just use Menelaus method or some simpler form just saying, okay, they are roughly where they should be. And so these other methods are probably going to be fairly accurate. Yeah, and John Birch uh, showed pretty nicely that you can use that during the adolescent timing. It works pretty well. A number of years ago, we actually I back solved those equations and we published an open source a spreadsheet that you could use. I probably need to spread that out and give it to people again because it solves the equations for you. That would be nice for the simple bone doctors. Okay, so next we have our favorite new section. We're apparently calling the lightning round. We'll see how fast it goes. So maybe, I don't know, Julia, do you want to kick us off? So Dr. Sanders, this only really works if we haven't read all the articles. And so we all try really hard to be ignorant going into this round. I have no problem with that. <laughs> so the first one I've got for us for the lightning round today is from Children's Hospital in New Orleans, Dr. Heffernan and Dr. Barnett, comparing short leg and long leg casts for distal one-third tibial shaft fractures. So this is one of those arguments that happens in our department a lot. You know, well, what'd you put that in and why'd you do that? And uh, the poor residents, I think, sort of get stuck in the middle sometimes. So question for everybody, which do you think, short leg or long leg, which had a shorter time to weight bearing, sure. short leg or long leg? Is this weight bearing without a cast or like till the doctor told in, them they could weight bear? 
till the doctor told them they could wait bear i would guess short leg shorter and short leg yeah i would also guess short leg Jim or Craig, you want to take a gander? Yeah, ch children bear weight when they start to get comfortable. There's probably not much difference, uh, but it, I'd, I'd say the short leg would probably be just fine. Yeah. yeah, so you guys are you guys are right. So short leg had a shorter time to weight bearing. Um, so then I'll, I'll also give you a chance to go after this one. Which had a shorter time to union short leg or long leg casts? Short leg. Sticking with short. With Everyone's the uh, sticking with short leg. Weight yeah. bearing stimulates some healing. All right. And then what do you think? Uh, you're, you're absolutely right. Shorter time to wait to a union in the short leg casts. And then uh, do you think that that uh, increased the risk of malunion at all? So kids that were treated in a short leg cast, did they have a higher rate of malunion? That would have been the one factor I would have thought a long leg would have helped with. But you guys aren't old enough. That's the problem. <laughs> we treated all these with when I was a resident, we treated all these, even in adults with PTBs and got them weight bearing early. Uh, and it was a great treatment. And then we started rotting everything. So we thought it had to be anatomic. <laughs> That's a great perspective, and and you're absolutely right, Dr. Sanders. So um, decreased uh, risk of cast complications with the short leg cast, which we would all anticipate, and also no increased risk of malunion with using short leg casts. So, uh, how big was their sample, the, Julia? Do you know? Like, was there any? Um, it was pretty large. I can confirm with you. Oh, that's perfect. Two seconds. Um, they had. Uh, 85 patients and there was no difference in the fracture types like as far as comminution or you know fibula fracture because that's one of the things that I initially thought was hey you know well are the kids that are getting put in short leg casts have different fractures right. but they didn't um, and uh, and so I think that's a good reminder to us that we don't necessarily have to torture kids with with long leg casts so all right. Um, so that was our first one. And again, that's out of this month's JPO for those listeners who want to take a look at that article in more detail. Um, our second one's going to be from uh, Shriners in Houston from Dr. Scott and uh, Weninger. And this is going to be incidence of vertebral exostosis in multiple hereditary exostosis and recommendations for screening, again, out of JPO this month. So what do you guys think the incidence of vertebral exostosis is in MHE? Are they talking like in the canal? It has to be in the uh, canal? Not necessarily or... intracanal, but vertebral exostosis. Depends if you're looking for it. <laughs> yeah, if they're um, getting the scan, 5%. Yep, so in patients that get a scan, what do you think the percentage that had it is? Yeah, I always thought of this as like 1% for some reason, but that's probably symptomatic or problematic ones. So I, I would guess 5 to 10%. I'm going 10. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go higher. I'm going to be oh, 20. 25 to 30. Oh, Josh, wow. I'm going to go for 15. I'll split your difference. Oh, all right. All right. Well, Josh is again our winner. Um, it was 28%. Mm -hmm. So, um, and that's not necessarily symptomatic or intracanal. There were only three actually with intracanal. So, um, and then the, the other kind of interesting part of this article was they, they were kind of looking to see if pelvic and rib exostoses um, were kind of a harbinger of vertebral exostoses, you know, are those, is, is that a kid that we need to look cl more closely at? And um, so they actually looked for pelvic and rib exostoses and uh, they found that if there w was the presence of pelvic or and rib exostoses that had a sensitivity of 88% for finding a vertebral exostosis um, and, a, and a specificity of 5%. So another little takeaway from that paper, again, if you wanna check that out, that's in this month's JPO. All right, are you guys going to start screening all of them with that or just your ones with other lesions on their axillary skeleton? For me, it's just uh, do an extra extra close neuro exam on those patients. Yeah, symptoms, which would be neurologic symptoms in this case. I get yeah. very confused when I see a child who comes to me with a scan and is with an exostosis in the canal, and they're completely asymptomatic on what to do. So I, I, I agree with you. Yeah, me too. I think the only the symptoms matter. I probably won't screen them with uh, imaging. Yeah, the paper's recommendations was, uh, you know, basically you can use selective screening for, for patients who either want to do high physical activity levels or patients with both both pelvic and rig exostosis. And then, of course, watching the neuro exam. So. Nice one. Right. Perfect.
Perfect. I'll take the next couple here. So we'll start in the spine journal. So this is from this month's spine journal. I picked a few articles that would be good for lightning round. So the first one um, out of Philadelphia Shrine Zucker School of Medicine in New York and um, neurosurgery department in Rockford, Illinois. Um, risk factors for proximal junctional kyphosis following surgical deformity correction in pediatric neuromuscular scoliosis. And they defined it in 60 consecutive patients greater than two years follow-up and looked at all of the previously reported risk factors, which there are several, as well as any additional or new risk factors for PJK, which is defined as greater than 10 degrees increased kyphosis between your upper instrumented vertebra and then two above that. So anyone want to take a guess, their rate of PJK on radiographic diagnosis? And this is all neuromuscular kids. 50. 25. 30. 15. Oh, Carter Clement, closest without going over, 27%. It's helpful when Josh isn't guessing. That's right. <laughs> I got a chance here. Okay, and now what about the rate of proximal junctional failure, which was defined as requiring revision surgery or intervention? Oh, hopefully very low, 5%. Yeah, this is correct. 1%. Oh, yeah, you're trying not to go over. I'm going to go 2% and just <laughs> really squeeze Julia's guess there. I'm just trying to think of all my patients that have gone bad in the past, and it's probably a little bit higher than that, probably 5 or 6%. Oh, we'll go with six. So you can beat Carter. Correct. 7%. 7%. So four, four of 60 strong work. Um, and then anyone want to throw out an idea of what the risk factor? So they found four risk factors. Um, any of you guys want to throw out a, a thought of what those risk factors might be? Pre-existing kyphosis. Yeah, it's gotta be number one. Okay. Good thought. Maybe uh, under correction uh, sagittal profile. Okay. Good thought. Yeah, residual deformity. Okay, good thought. So essentially all of those are old and previously reported, which they found none of. So interestingly, they looked at age, they looked at um, instrumentation, they looked at level fuse, they have a whole table here of things they looked at and none of those in their study at least showed significance. What they found were significant risk factors include the use of haloed gravity traction perioperatively, which is interesting a decreased proximal kyphosis preoperatively so kids who had less proximal kyphosis preoperatively which is a little counterintuitive a loss of any correction of the primary curve postoperatively which makes sense they're, they're losing some correction and then greater postoperative c2 sagittal translation so increased kyphosis postoperatively predicted um, pjk postoperatively so you got that one but interesting that a lot of the other factors that people have talked about, you know, the argument of where to stop implant density, hooks or screws up top, all of the age, all of those things, at least in their study of 60 patients, none of those showed any significance. Really interesting with the halo traction. Yeah, that wasn't one that had been commonly or actually reported previously. So that's well, probably a marker of who was started off in a really bad kyphosis and required halo traction. And then the numbers didn't bear that out uh, with that more generalized measure. But I don't know. You have to imagine those patients were starting off in a bad place. Yeah, yeah. it just it's, doesn't mirror my experience of kids who have bad kyphosis before and then really watching them drop off afterwards. Hmm. Yeah, I think that their findings, I think they were surprised. Just reading through their article, I think they were surprised by what was significant, uh, at least statistically. And then second article out of spine deformity this month. Um, this is an article out of Brazil called Magnetic Resonance Imaging, Effectiveness in Adolescent Idiopathic Scoliosis. So the question that I have every single day, I had two patients today, I went back and forth on today, when to get an MRI, when does an MRI matter? Um, they introduced a couple new terms into the orthopedic literature as far as MRIs and uh, what benefit they may have. Um, so. Let's start with an easy question. What percentage of adolescent idiopathic scoliosis, so these, anyone with an abnormal exam, anyone with an atypical curve, anyone young, early onset, anyone that you would typically think of getting an MRI in, they threw out, they weren't included in the study. So they had 198 consecutive patients who did get an MRI with no 
other reason that you'd look at as a risk factor. What percentage of those patients have a abnormal finding on MRI? Looks like an abnormal finding. Ooh, I hope it's really low. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it's very low or it's going to make me worry a lot. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say 1%. Five. I bet they found like 10% or something, but I bet the amount that were significant were, yeah, like 1%. I'd, I'd echo that, but I bet the number that were significant were even less than that. Yeah, so they found abnormal MRI findings in 12.6%, which was much higher than I would expected. Um, and so what they promote from that is a, is a number, you know, we looked at number needed to treat. Um, they looked at a different a different criteria, which is number needed to diagnose. How many kids do you have to get an MRI in to find anything abnormal? Which again was 12.9% for them, um, which they said you have to get 7.9 MRIs to find anything abnormal. That was higher than I expected. That was actually relatively close to other previous data, which again was a little higher than I spot. But maybe more importantly, how many of those kids had a change in treatment? Either required some sort of intervention either required a change in management, surgical management, timing of surgery, or needed further workup for that finding. Show me none. I'm gonna I'll second say, that. I'm gonna say five. They probably referred them to something else, but yeah. Yeah, so four, four out of 198. Um, and those were a significant um, Chiari malformation, two vaginal invaginations, and one kind of holocord syringomyelia. And so they promote that a number needed to misdiagnose, which in their, in their calculation was the number of MRIs that you have to get until you actually have something that requires any change in plan in any way, shape or form was 66. So we're getting 66 MRIs to find one kid who has something that requires any sort of intervention. Um, well, I love studies that tell me what I'm doing is okay. So I'm going to continue to not screen everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and, and what, they, what they showed is that when they actually looked at their patients who had abnormal physical exam findings, there was no significant difference between the two groups of these kids who didn't and kids who did. So it was interesting that they found that all the things that we look for, um, abnormal exams, reflexes, things like that, they didn't show any significant difference between relevant MRI findings and not relevant MRI changes. And that's looking at age, that's looking at curve abnormalities, gender, kyphosis, lanky classification, curve magnitude. None of those things were predictive of relevant MRI findings. You know, I think of that patient with the whole cord syringomyelia. And if you try to do their surgery without recognizing that and you started your correction, I would assume that you're more likely to drop signals. Has anyone ever seen a case where they've dropped signals and then got an MRI and they found a native, like uh, some sort of issue with this cord that was pre-existing that they didn't know of. My short career, I haven't. They, they, they reference a couple of studies that show certainly that kids with syringomyelia and other, other neural axis abnormalities do have a tendency to have signal changes. Um, but, but no, I mean, clinically, I certainly have never experienced that, fortunately. And the base on vagination, you wonder if they had like a type 4 OI or something else that was going on at the same time. Sure, sure. So those of you who cringe every time you think about getting an MRI because the resident says, this curve looks a tiny bit longer or shorter than I thought, or this is something that just is a little off, you can, you can rest relatively assured that, that you're probably not missing anything. And at the same time, getting MRIs for slightly atypical curves, you're not gonna, you're not gonna change your practice most of the time. I like nice. it. Thanks, Josh. All right, uh I've got a uh, couple articles I reviewed this month's uh, JCO, the Journal of Children's Orthopedics, the uh, Journal of the European Pediatric Orthopedic Society. And the first one is entitled, Is the Modified Gartland Classification System Important in Deciding the Need for Operative Management of Supracondylar Humerus Fractures? The first thing I'll say is this is a level five study. It was a survey study where they sent a bunch of x-rays to orthopedists to uh, get their opinions. So this doesn't definitively answer the question. But this, this modification they're referring to in the Gartland uh, classification is basically the 2A, 2B modification, um, where 2A is just a pure extension injury with the posterior cortex intact. And then the 2B has some rotation or translation, so probably more unstable. 
the study found probably what you'd expect. They were pretty good at determining, you know, inner and intra-observer uh, reliability was not bad, um, but the decision-making got a little fuzzy for those two A's. So almost all the time, the type 1s were getting non-op, the type 3s were getting surgery, and even the type 2Bs, not as often, but were usually getting surgery. Then the type 2As were really split between uh, surgery and non-operative care. Our younger Jay Sanders on the call is a PI of a uh, randomized trial looking at this. Uh, I'd be interested to hear how everyone's thinking about this. I, I'm doing sort of what the authors were proposing, where basically I give the two A's an attempt at non-op, and the two B's uh, typically get surgery unless it's almost a 2A. I subclassify mine even more beyond that. So I have the 2A bad and the 2A good. <laughs> and so if it's just hinged back and it's just behind the anterior humeral line, then certainly a, a gentle reduction in non-op. But if it's, uh, if it's way hinged back, and again, I, I don't have any objective criteria for that, then certainly I feel better and more comfortable um, having it in a pin and not have to worry about it displacing over the next week. So uh, this is obviously something that's near and dear to my heart um, and have continued my um, studies of this. And uh, in my practice, the two A's get non-opt unless they fall off and very few of them do um, if a, an adequate reduction is actually performed. I think a lot of the ones that we say fall off at a week weren't actually reduced at all um, the first time around. Uh, but then two B's are definitely getting pinned. And man, the first time you get a two A that comes back with a pin site infection, you know, you're like, man, did I really need to do that? So, I've, been, I've been surprised those uh, those Holt two A bads. Um, I've been surprised how well they do. Like those, I feel like the the residents tell me that they they reduce them and they pop in in a really satisfying way. And I haven't had any fall off yet, but I've been pretty aggressive about any 2A getting reduced and knock on wood, so far so good. Another thing that's really helped me with these, I've started really paying attention to that sort of newly defined uh, hourglass angle. And I find looking at the hourglass angle to make sure it's an adequate reduction is much more helpful than looking at the capitellum versus the anterior humeral line. Nothing to add. All right, um, the next one that sort of jumped out to me is kind of interesting. Uh, from this month's JCO was called Midterm Results After In-Situ Pinning and Hip Arthroscopy for Mild Skiffy. Um, and those midterm results basically meant that it was at least five years of follow-up on all the patients. This one's out of Zurich. And um, basically, they would routinely scope and do an osteoplasty for any mild skiffy, being a Southwick angle less than 30 degrees. Um, they did them very quickly. The average time to the scope was only 10 days after the in situ pinning. And overall, they found uh, very good results. The flexion and the internal rotation and the alpha angle all normalized after the uh, osteochondroplasty. And at five years, all of those gains were maintained. There was a, a scattered number of patients who had like a little bit of uh, degeneration here and there. Um, but probably no more than you'd expect in just a population of skiffies. So um, I assume no one here is routinely or is at a center where anyone is routinely scoping skiffies. Is that is that a fair assumption? Correct. Yeah, just waiting till they get uh, symptomatic and then probably doing either a, a scope or a dislocation depending on the severity. Yep. Correct. Yeah. So, you know, I, I thought that was a, an interesting one that made me think. It's something that we've spoken about here. You know, it's something that's been promoted by GANS to, to scope all those mild ones because we know that they have CAMs and we know that CAMs cause FAI and degeneration. Um, so this was a very small sample, not big enough to change practice or anything, but I, I was glad to see them bringing that sort of thought process into the spotlight a little bit. Yeah, I should compare it to a group that didn't get it because there's plenty of them out there and then you have a real study on your hands. We exactly. Start that's what, changing that's stuff. Yeah. Yep. Jim, I'm kind of interested to hear from you, actually, since you're uh, significantly uh, more experienced than all of us uh, on the call. But what's your take? I always like to ask people with all of the, the changes, particularly in hip preservation over the last 10 or 20 years, 
Um, I mean, we're getting to a point where, I mean, this is something that I wouldn't necessarily have predicted is people scoping immediately after mm -hmm. an insight to pinning. What, what just, what are your thoughts on kind of the evolution of that and how quickly do you see, do you see that advancing? You know, it has been fast. And, you know, when I was a fellow, we didn't recognize any of these things and early in my years in practice. Uh, and so if we were going to do something after these, we would end up doing a proximal femoral osteotomy for them and uh, really didn't consider doing anything with the chondroplasty or an osteoplasty of the femoral neck on those. So it's, it's been a rapid change. It'll be interesting to see if the results bear out as the proponents think that they do. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it does make sense. If you, if you firmly believe that FAI always or usually causes degeneration, then it makes sense that you would do it sooner than later, wait until they become symptomatic. Um, oftentimes is what we do in pediatric orthopedics, but in the rest of the world, if we think that something is going to cause a problem, being more proactive makes sense. I don't know that there's really great data that soundly convinces me that FAI causes, FAI causes degeneration. Certainly degeneration can be caused by FAI, but whether that's a two-way train, um, I don't think has completely been shown. I'm also not sure modeling plays into this and are they pinning and scoping hips that would have remodeled just fine or not? And I think that's where Craig's uh, comment about this would be great for an RCT uh, at some point, but trying to get the numbers for that's gonna be tough. These aren't great scope candidates either too. So I think, um, you know, the, I think about the, the most recent skiffies that I've had and um, I, not that I do hip arthroscopy, but even if I did, I, I would not, uh, not be jumping at the opportunity to scope those hips. Yeah, so. well, you might rather scope them than do like an open osteochondroplasty though. That's true. Um, the reason I can say that is because somebody else would be doing the scope. <laughs> that's probably true. Yeah, um, sign them up. <laughs> All right, I have uh, two others. I'll try and be a little quicker. So I'm not going to tell you the name of this one, but it is from the most recent JBJS. Uh, I'll tell you the name afterwards, but they'll give away the answers. So they have a GOAT model of tibia osteotomies with circular fixation, and they're testing bone healing through different uh, types of fixation. So static fixation, rigidly locked. Um, that's, that's choice one. Choice two would be dynamic fixation where um, the bone edges are opposed and they keep them aligned, but they're on these um, little dynamometers. So it allows some micromotion there, similar to what you would get in like a cast. And then the last one was looking into reverse dynamization where they have it um, uh, dynamic for three weeks and then they lock it up statically. And so sacrificed eight weeks later, they did torsional testing, they did micro CTs looking at the characteristics. Um, and the question is, which one is going to be, you know, what they determined to have the best amount of bone healing at that eight week time point, goat model. So static fixation, dynamic fixation, or reverse dynamization. Reverse dynamization. Carter, yeah, you did. Carter and I both, Carter and I both agree with reverse dynamization. <laughs> that sounds, that sounds smart. Yeah. Jeff yeah, Sanders, do you want to be a, to be a trailblazer? <laughs> Yeah, I don't think they would have published the study unless their hypothesis was that is that that was the best. So that, that, uh, that's where I would go to. You guys are too smart. So the name of the article is Reverse Dynamization Accelerates Bone Healing in a Large Animal Osteotomy Model. And this is from lead author Vita Glatt, who's a PhD at UT Health in San Antonio. Senior author is Chris Yopes from Nationwide Children's in Columbus, Ohio. Um, so Craig, would you explain again um, what exactly reverse dynamization is, just in case there's anyone, you know, any listeners, yeah, definitely so co-hosts who don't fully understand. Of course, it. of course not. So this would be, this would be allowing some micro motion or um, some degree of dynamic motion at the fracture site within the first three weeks, but then becoming more static. So the concept here is that that motion stimulates the initial healing response, but then at some point being dynamic disrupts the vascular regrowth and disrupts your structure. And so being locked in, once you have that initial burst of biologic activity is gonna be helpful, which is actually, um, you know, you all kind of seem to get grasp it intuitively, but it's almost the opposite of what is done sometimes when you have a non-healing fracture or maybe a regenerate that's kind of terrible. Some people will then dynamize things. They will decrease the fixation with the hopes that it's gonna stimulate more bone healing. Um, I think it, uh, I think it's maybe more complicated than any of us fully appreciate, but um, 
uh, I do appreciate the study and the concepts at play. Um, you describe a practical way to do that. Uh... <laughs> yeah, so you take a goat, you cut its tibia, <laughs> you put it in circular fixation. <laughs> no, I think it. I think it mostly applies to people who are in frames. Truthfully, where you have that uh, yeah. ability okay. to adjust. I don't think you can really do it with internal fixation unless. I mean, I did think about it in terms of the fractures that you see. They're maybe three weeks out that have had a chance to build some callus. Like sometimes you're hesitant to take them uh, to the OR because you're afraid they won't move. But if you put some rigid fixation in there, it's like they're going to heal like gangbusters. So. That's what I do. That's what I do with my cut to a bad. I let them get mostly healed and then I take them back. And then that's why they all do so well. Smart, smart. All right, last one. I think one, one other... Well, oh, yeah. let me sorry say one more thing because I think it kind of ties into last month's discussion. Um, is uh, is I think that those ideas are kind of what's going to go along with the the changes in technology in limb lengthening and 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 uh, fracture healing is if we can make um, you know implants that can do things like that on their own, that would be super cool. So. Um, just one of those other things that can go along with technology once we understand more about the biology, certainly more than I understand about the biology of fracture healing. Yeah, and that's probably the way to do it, right? Understand the biology and make an implant that solves that problem rather than what most of the world does is make some implant that is expensive and fancy and cool and then just start throwing it at things and see what it may or may not help. Wait yeah. a minute, you're trying to reverse the whole history of orthopedics? <laughs> <Yeah>, exactly. <laughs> All right, I'm yeah, gonna, that's a, that's an I'm gonna sign off now and call a patent lawyer. So uh, you guys can stay on. <laughs> <laughs> one last one that's gonna scare us all. Uh, this is from, uh, this is the EPUB and JPO. It's called Intraoperative Neurologic Monitoring in Lower Limb Surgery for Patients with Mucopolysaccharidosis. This is from, this is a collaboration. Um, so uh, Andrew Georgiatis, we've had on multiple times uh, from Gillette Children's in Minnesota. Uh, and Kevin Walker is a senior author, also from Gillette Children's in Minnesota. But they also use data from AI DuPont, Spokane, Washington, Shriners, and Seattle Children's. So um, they had 92 patients who underwent 252 lower extremity surgeries, and 33% of them had intraoperative neuromonitoring. Apparently, a lot of these centers started doing this due to some sentinel events. So they compared pre and post. My question for you guys is what percent of the time did intraoperative neuromonitoring change their intraoperative care? This would maybe drive them to reposition or raise the maps or potentially even abort the procedure. What percent of the time did it cause them to change what they're doing intraoperatively? I mean, MPS is a, a tough disease. I know I've done some research on it in orthopedics and out. And I mean, it is just tough. And I've actually seen um, at my center, some complications from neurologic injuries in and MPS patients. So I would guess it's pretty high. I mean, I'm going to say 43%. I'm going to go with 20% of the time is going to change. I'm going to go way up. I'm going to think it's somewhere in the 75% that's with all the soft tissue switch you have in those areas. Yeah, I, I was thinking it'd be scarily high as well. Okay, well, it's 20%, but to me, that was scarily high. So, Julia, ding, ding, ding. And then here's the other question. How many patients experienced a spinal cord injury in each group, um, whether they were monitored or unmonitored? And this is from lower extremity surgery? So, they had lower, yeah, it's not spine surgery. They were doing monitoring while they're doing lower extremity surgery, which when I heard that, I, I hadn't, I guess, read the case reports on that. I just, you know, I think of the glenoaxial instability and cervical spine issues. And I thought, well, they're just, you know, you're watching them to make sure you're being careful with the cervical spine, but that's apparently not the case. Most of these reports when they've occurred have happened with thoracic spine, spinal cord ischemia um, due to positioning or a unrecognized stenosis or kyphosis or something like that. So uh, it's, just, it's just that essentially their spinal uh, column and cord is a minefield and any sort of manipulation or hypotensive thing might tip them over the edge. So that's why they're monitoring for a lower extremity. All right, so again, the question, how many experienced spinal cord injury in the monitored group versus the unmonitored group? This is like go. spinal cord injury after, like? Like they woke up with a deficit, not and not from like what they were operating on the lower extremity. So let's say they, yeah. they woke up like Asia A, full motor sensory deficit. Uh, I'll go 3% in both. To make a great study, I'm going to say 0% in the monitored group and 
0.7% in the non-monitored group. I'm going to go f 2 in the monitored and 10 in the unmonitored. 1 in 5 here. Yeah, so no patients who were monitored woke up with uh, injury. Three of the patients who weren't monitored did wake up with uh, Asia A full spinal cord injury of, at the thoracic level. And at two, at one year follow-up, um, none of them had recovered anything. So it was- Are they the deficit. same numbers in each group? It was, no, so um, it was 33% had monitoring of the total 92 patients. So it would have been, you know, roughly 30 had monitoring, 60 did not. Three of the 60 had a full paralysis that's persisted. And the risk factors for that. So with those surgeries for those um, uh, paralyzing events, they were five and a half hours average, 500 milliliters of blood, uh, blood loss. Two of them were found to have significant spine kyphosis. And then one had stenosis. And some people think that there's glycosaminoglycan accumulation within the cord, which may, even if that a deformity, may pre, uh, predispose you to this. So Anyway, that scared me. I think I would do monitoring so you at least know what's going on because that's that sounds more risky than some spine surgeries that we do. Yeah. So and, the and authors. You, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, if you round up, three of sixty patients is seven percent for those keeping. Oh, okay, for those keeping score at home. Yep. All right, you are awarded ten thousand so, so, points. <laughs> so the author's supposition then is that by changing things in that in those twenty percent in that 20 percent of patients that had some some sort of neuro change by you know raising the maps or whatever they did they presumably prevented you know one and a half spinal cord injuries in that monitor group yeah i mean they weren't like traumatic sort of things so i do think that repositioning or really probably raising the maps helps a lot or if you try those things and nothing helps it then you're going to board the procedure which they did in like eight cases um, mm -hmm. you're going to pour the procedure and then you give it a chance to recover. Whereas if you don't know what's going on, you power through more blood loss, more time on the table. Um, I think it's a pretty reasonable conclusion. So it's well, a good take home. Yeah. Notice yeah, to everyone paper. else. Okay. The last thing we had planned is, uh, something called, uh, we don't actually have a name for this yet. Uh, advice from the kids table or advice you may not want. Um, but <laughs> this is where we talk about a case and, um, the three recently board certified orthopedists give you advice you may not want. And then our guests can give you advice that might actually matter. Uh, Julia, you had something maybe that came up recently. Yeah. So really interesting. The first one in, in my career, and this is something that I think we all sort of prepare for mentally that might happen. Um, and I always prepare in my type three super for a neurovascular injury. Um, but so this was a type three that had a pretty delayed presentation. Um, uh, and uh, we have a, orth a dedicated orthopedic urgent room. So the patient came in the evening prior and was booked first case, um, had some paresthesias in the radial and ulnar distributions, um, but otherwise had a, a warm and well-perfused hand. The uh, radial pulse was Dopplerable, but not palpable at the time of admission. Um, and there was um, some ecchymosis at the AC fossa um, but swelling was not not super severe, and there was no tenting or puckering. Um, and so we got into the OR and uh, attempted a closed reduction. I was not happy with the closed reduction, um, and so I proceeded to an open reduction. And um, I, as I generally do, I put the tourniquet up prior to making my incision. Um, made my incision, obtained uh, an open reduction. Basically, there was a large flap of, of muscle and periosteum in the fracture site. Um, the neurovascular bundle was uh, apparently intact. I looked at it. I found it. It looked good. Um, got a closer or got an open reduction, pinned it. Um, and then as I always do and think thankful that I do, um, I took the tourniquet down and uh, there was an immediate apparent arterial injury so um question you know i think that's worth discussion is you know how do you manage that situation and i think for me again that was my first time in in practice dealing with that and luckily i'm at an institution that has a fantastic support system so 
you know, I identified the injury. I immediately did all of our first response, which is this, you know, shove your hand in the wound. Notice to um, listeners, she's holding her hand up at the screen. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm putting my finger in the wound um, and uh, put the tourniquet back up. I called vascular surgery. Um, one of my awesome transplant surgeon partners was walking by at the time and um, I popped my head out and I said, hey, want to come in? Um, and uh, But we had vascular surgery there within about 15 minutes um, and they did a, uh, what uh, was able to be primarily repaired um, arterial injury um, with ischemia time of of less than an hour. Um, patient had a bounding palpable pulse postoperatively. We monitored him in the ICU. Um, we did not give him any heparin uh, postoperatively. He was just given a baby aspirin daily. Um, and uh, he's just two weeks post-op now, but uh, his comeback to clinic reduction is great. And um, bounding pulse again, and he, his neurovascular, um, or his neuro exam is completely normal. So normal motor and sensory exam. Um, and, uh, and plan is for an ultrasound kind of follow up, um, in about a month. Um, so question I think for the group is just kind of, how do you manage that situation? How does your, uh, institution play into that? Um, you know, who do you call? Do you have vascular surgery? Do you have plastic surgery? Do you do a primary repair yourself? Um, and, you know, if you can't do, if they can't do a primary repair, you know, who, who is it going to be that's going to do the grafting? Um, so I think that's something that we, we have great, um, uh, you know, appropriate use criteria and guidelines from the AAOS and from POSNA on what to do with a, you know, warm, well-perfused hand or a white hand. Um, but I think the logistics of what to actually do when something bad happens is, um, is very variable. So I'd love to hear everybody's thoughts on that. I'm happy to say that uh, at our children's hospital here in New Orleans, we do have pretty rapid access to vascular surgery. So that is 100% what would be happening in my OR, not a direct repair done by myself. Why do you think it took a, until you took them to the OR for that to manifest itself? Do you think that was there before and uh, it just... It's when you opened up the skin, there was still enough tension kind of holding it. What do you think was going on there? Yeah, so my thought process, you know, of course, your first thought when it starts hosing is, oh, my God, I put a hole in the artery myself, you know, um, and that may have happened. I don't know. Um, I don't think so. I was careful. I found it. I protected it. Um, the way that the tissues were, the, the vein had thrombosed and was lacerated at the same level as the arterial injury. And so I think what had happened was overnight that art, that artery, I'll stop making hand gestures because nobody can actually see that on the podcast. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, I think the art artery was probably kinked in the fracture site overnight. And what was, what was Dopplerable was probably retrograde flow, um, collateral flow. And that's why the hand was pink and perfused. And as, you know, as I usually do, I put the tourniquet up before I made an incision. And so my examination of the artery is just sort of like, you know, you look at it and it looks like it's intact, you know, and, and the, the laceration to the artery was actually longitudinal and it was very irregular. It was very ragged and it was on the back side of the artery. And so my guess is that that is where it got pinched. Um, and then in my closed reduction to tech attempts, I probably released it because I was, I got, you know, I got, it was like pretty good, but not good enough, my closed reduction. And so I think I released it and then the tourniquet went up very soon after that. And so hid any significant bleeding that would have occurred in that time period. That's my guess of what happened. But one of the hard things about this is we, you never really know. Yeah. It sounds like you managed it beautifully though. Yeah, Julia, I mean, I think we're all lucky to be in places where you kind of have that backup. Um, I think of some of our listeners who might be in private practice and places on that backup. And that's a real question. We'd love to hear some people write in and tell us what they, if they've had something similar, how to manage it without some sort of vascular backup. Um, I think the most interesting question, and you, I do agree you handled it beautifully, I think the interesting question is what would have happened had a couple of things, like, so... How many of these do we see that are the ones that have a doperable pulse that the artery is from most or it is entrapped and we really never notice it because it hasn't been explored. You get a reduction that's okay and you accept it and the fracture heals and they have a hand that is still perfused through collateral, 
but the brachial artery is probably not functional and doesn't matter. I think that's a big debate. Um, the other thing, the other thing I thought of is, um, actually, maybe I'll just leave that there and see what, what you guys think. I mean, is it okay just to have a hand that's confused? I think that low-grade ischemia is problematic. Should we be exploring more of these? I can just tell you from my experience, I've had a few pink for perfused hands that don't have great pulses that have a doppler pulse that I have not explored. And uh, I convince myself repeatedly that the hand has, you know, good cap refill and is, is pink and perfused that I haven't had one yet that hasn't come back to clinic with a palpable radial pulse and a good perfused hand thereafter. So kids are so plastic is, is my guess is, you know, whether it's vasospasms, a little rent, a, a little clot, something that, that somehow I don't think they get a briskly normal radial palpable pulse back from collaterals within a couple of weeks. I don't think the system re like that. I think it's, they get a revascularization through their traumatized vessel. You know, that's how most of them end up is just fine in the end. The problem is, is that we don't know those few that are going to really go on to problems with a dysvascular hand in the end. And that's, that's where you face the challenges. And uh, so most of the time we're going to get away with the, the hand is pink, it's perfused. You're probably going to be okay, but there's still that one child once in a while that's not going to be. Yeah. And I think that was the most interesting part for me about this case was just, wow, like what if I had accepted that, like, okay reduction that I had, um, you know, and let the kid go. And we usually monitor our type threes overnight, um, even if they get a CRPP, um, you know, but I, I think that's, that was kind of one of those interesting, like worst case scenario things to me is, gosh, how many of these do we miss? Um, and I think the answer is we've, we, in the general sense, the literature has really borne out that, um, the kids do well, kind of. And, uh, and so we may miss a lot more of these than we know about. Uh, Jim, you, you helped with the AUC guidelines for superpowers, is that right? Mm -hmm. Is it, is it then, is it really just up to the surgeon if you have a warm, well-perfused hand that is not a palpable pulse? Is it up to you whether you explore or not? Um, because you know some people are pretty aggressive about exploring that because it indicates that there's a vascular issue up in this case. And but I've I, I've only seen people mostly um, uh, mostly observe overnight for that sort of situation. Are the guidelines clear? Or is there not data to make it good clear? That, that's the problem is that the guidelines are not all that clear. So the purpose of an appropriate use criteria and the way it's developed, it 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 does involve experts and expert opinion, uh, and then actually. Uh, people on different sides trying to sway people in a different direction and seeing if the arguments are going to hold. So in the end, if you really want to solve it, you truly have to do the, do the studies to actually do it. The AUC can give you some really good guidance because it's the best that's out there uh, at this at this point. And, you know, developed from the RAND Corporation, it's shown that in general it can match studies largely. But I think the only way you can actually solve it is to truly do a study in the end. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm hoping that's my like one vascular injury for the next like 10 years or so, you know, probably I, don't, I don't have to deal with that again anytime soon. Um, but definitely got to, got got my heart pumping at eight o'clock in the morning. So uh, just a quick question for the panel. Uh, type threes, do you do them that night or do you do them in your trauma room the next morning? I'll tell you, I, I have a still I actually instituted this with myself in fellowship that any type three that I could be in the OR before midnight, I would routinely do. I did that as a fellow and I've continued that as a staff, the type threes that are, you know, widely off. Uh, I certainly tried to do that night and I've pretty been pretty well sticking with that. Be curious to know your guys thoughts. I have, I have a classification. It's like a modification of the Holt 2A classification. Um, if it's, if there's any neurovascular thing, I do that right away. Um, but other than that, I just give it like, honestly, an eyeball test. And if it's one where you open your phone and you go, ooh, then I worry that that's displaced enough. They might get compartment syndrome. So I do that in the middle of the night. But if I open, I'm like, okay, then that waits till the morning. 
I will say I will say I do pretty similar to Carter. Uh, definitely, if there's a vascular issue, not popping the pulse, um, or if there's a nerve issue, I just worry that something's going to be evolving. Like that's a sign that something is worse. So I think you are. I don't think you should wait unless it's like 4 a.m. and it's going to be you're going to be just as fast waiting for your first start to do that. Um, if it's just a routine type three without that, um, I think if it's uh, if it's past midnight, I'd probably not take it. Yeah, that'd be interesting to look at because where Julia has a room readily available and always available the next morning, that makes it pretty easy to, to do the next morning. Where like me, if I have a case that I want to do the next morning, I have a good system where I get up and it, I add it on at 5.30 or 6 to go before the normal OR happens. So it's not a huge inconvenience, but sometimes trying to find time and having clinic and other cases that you're pushing back and things like that certainly entices me to do it that night. Jim, when I was after in practice, we did them all at night. Uh, whenever they came in, we would go and do them. And I can tell you, Dave Skaggs' work with that you could do them the next morning sure made life a whole lot better. Yeah, and it's interesting because we actually had this discussion in our group. Um, since I'm kind of the trauma person at our place, uh, a lot of the times I'm not the one on call the night before. And so things get added in and uh, I take yeah, care of you them. never even knew about it. Right, exactly. Um, and so I showed up and this is what I'm, I'm handed, which is fine. And, you know, the discussion we had in our, in our group, which I think is a great discussion is, you know, gosh, should this have gone the night before, you know, this is a bad type three with, you know, and, and even if it's late, so say it's 11 o'clock at night, should you go with this? Um, and I think the question is then, well, gosh, you know, maybe you could have gotten to it sooner, but if the artery was lacerated at the time of injury and it was in there, then you're dealing with a vascular injury at midnight instead of 8 a.m. And then, you know, is your access to a quality surgical team, is your access to the vascular surgeon going to be the same on a Sunday night at, uh, at midnight as it is a Monday morning at 8 a.m.? And honestly, um, do you take the care to open it and get the perfect reduction at one in the morning like you do after a full night of sleep? Or are you maybe a little more likely to accept, you know, your reduction that you just pinned? Yeah. So I think uh, ultimately outcomes is probably the same. I mean, the kid has going to have a great outcome and, um, and I don't think doing it the night before would have, would have changed that. Certainly. So. Carter, you had some questions. Yeah. Uh, so, well, Dr. Sanders, you've been on the line for a while. Um, I just had like one or two minutes of questions I wanted to ask you if that's all right. Uh, I know a little late over there on the East coast. Is that okay with you to keep pushing on? Sure. Okay, I'll keep it keep it quick. I you know I think one fun part of this whole podcast thing is that um, we like to think it sort of makes the field of orthopedics, especially the in North America for the um, Posna Society, a little smaller and a little more personal. So I was just hoping to sort of let our listeners get to know you a little bit better and ask you a few um, low pressure questions. So my first one I'd written down is, what is your favorite surgery? Oh gosh, I, I love a scoliosis cast. It's not a surgery, but I love putting on a scoliosis cast. Do you do it on a meta table? What's your I technique? do. Yeah, I do. Mm -hmm. um, and what is your favorite OR instrument? Cobb. Cobb. Solid he answer. Has, I recently. He, he does. I, recently, I, I have to expand upon this. It's not a cob like you're thinking of. It is a canoe paddle. That he, <laughs> <laughs> he scoops the Peristyles <laughs> off with. <laughs> how, how often are your cobs sharpened and my dad made me sharpen them every time we would do a case but now it's just in the or when they do unfortunately nobody else seems to use my cobs so they're generally pretty sharp yeah i i don't would never speak for dr weinstein but i suspect his favorite instrument would also be the cob which is interesting I recently thought I had a really good idea to invent a cob that is also a sucker. So there's like a suction tube right up the middle of it. Someone, it's out there. Someone mm -hmm. beat me to that one. Go for it. <laughs> um, what in your career to this point, this could be a longer question, but no pressure. We can keep it very, very succinct. Just wondering, what are you most proud of at this point in your career? Oh, gosh. Uh I'm hoping it's how I've treated people, but in, in the end, I think that some of the advances that we've been able to make, restoring scoliosis casting to something that it needed to be, being able to help understand maturity much better and how that relates to, to spinal deformity and limb length issues, 
uh, some of the QI work that we've been able to do with it. It's mm-hmm. it, pediatric orthopedics is just plain fun and just going after it. Everything's going to be fun in the end when you can be proud of it. The, this may be a, a personal question or two probing so we can always pass, but I was just wondering at this point in your career, um, is there any specific complication or type of complication that has sort of stuck with you that you've, you know, wrestled with? Uh, Generally, they're the ones about the patients where something bad happened and you change their life in a bad way. Uh, those change your life forever. Uh, and uh, we all have them at some point in your career. And I, I think probably the biggest part of that is trying to help other people through when it happens with them too, because we, we all suffer from those and they're tough. What would you say is the most pr- uh, pressing issue in our field of pediatric orthopedics besides the timing of peak growth velocity. <laughs> oh, it, it, the, the whole field has so many things that need to be answered. You know, my, my, my primary interest is scoliosis, and I don't think we understand scoliosis. Uh, we don't understand the disability from it. We don't understand the pulmonary function. We don't understand the mechanics of it, why it progresses, what happens with it. I, I think it's a whole wide open field that for us to be able to treat people well, we have to understand these disorders a whole lot better than we do. Scoliosis is just my example of it. There's another. There's another one. It could be a quick, a, a long end, a long discussion. We could probably talk for a long time. But just if there's a way to answer succinctly, I'd be curious if you have any general advice you would give to someone who's, oh, say, two and a half years into their career and starting off in pediatric orthopedics. Be curious, learn a lot, and get around people who can give you good advice and help you think through things. Uh, I've been fortunate to work with great people over time. That's great. And lastly, um, you know, a lot of people on this uh, podcast right now have uh, various connections to uh, UNC Chapel Hill at uh, different times throughout our training and career. And um, with one of the podcast members leaving UNC, I'm wondering if there's any warning you would give to the folks at Vanderbilt about taking on uh, Dr. Craig Lauer? Oh my God, don't take him. Let, make him stay at UNC. <laughs> You're cutting that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, thank you. I've, I've learned a lot and I really appreciate you. Your candid answers and you taking the time to, to be with us tonight it really means a lot. You guys do a great job with this. I really enjoy it. Thanks for joining yeah, us so much. We really, really appreciate it. Even though they made us come together at 8.30 at Eastern Time. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, again, thanks to all you guys. Thanks to our listeners. Uh, again, any feedback about the format, uh, thoughts on our name, or questions uh, for our panelists that we, or guests that we've had on, please email podcast at gmail.com. Um, we really appreciate uh, everyone giving us so much attention and uh, and. Uh, enjoying what we're doing here because we're having a lot of fun with it too. Great job, guys. Thank you. Thanks, well, thanks for joining us. Everyone.